0: introduce yourself to me, I'd really appreciate it if you would. I'd love to meet you and get to hear a little bit about about your story and and, uh, those kind of things. So if you're you're here and you haven't met me yet, I'd love it if you'd catch me in the foyer after the service and just say, hey, we haven't met, and uh, it'd be great to meet you. Well, last night I sent out a letter, uh, an email. Um, Let me just, before I say that, (laughs) you may have gotten two kinds of emails from me. Yeah, some of you have. Okay, so there's there's uh, some character out there pretending to be me. <laughs> this is a new experience for me, uh, that having someone out there. Anyhow, their their email address is slightly different than mine, but close enough that it's easy to uh, think it's real. And they're gonna try to scam you and get uh, and get you to give them gift cards or. Um, Visa gift cards or something like that. Okay? So just be warned. If you have been scammed, come talk to me. We'll try to fix that. Okay? But, uh, yeah, so uh, I was talking to... Actually, so it was about a week ago, I think a mass email went out to a lot of people just sort of saying, Hey, it's Pastor Steve. I need your help. And so just let's keep this confidential. And just, you know, can you help me with this? And Anyhow. So... How many of you got an email like that? Oh, wow. I am never going to ask you for gift cards. <laughs> or ha-ha-ha. <laughs> or <laughs> That's great. No, no, no. I don't want your banking information. I don't want... Uh, no. Okay, so just... You know, It's an it's a f- interesting world we live in right now, and so I just want to put that out there. Anyhow, if you got an email like that, and uh, I would say just to be on the safe side, if you get an email and it's from somebody, not just me, because this has happened actually with other people in the last week. In fact, uh, someone from the church came to me and said that just a couple days before that sort of mass email went out uh, to people in Hillcrest, mass emails went out to everyone in their apartment complex. And it was uh, somehow someone got all those emails asking everyone to renew their leases and please send in their banking information to do that. And this is the time we live in. So we have to be a little more savvy. And uh, always, if someone's asking you for something like that, double-check it. Phone the office. Phone the church office. Um, I'm not going to ask you to do something uh, confidential or secretive that, that our team would not know about. Okay. You know that I'm just trying to make sure we don't get scammed, and if you did get scammed, come talk to us confidentially. Ha <laughs> ha! Come talk to us. Anyhow, we don't want to uh, allow sinful things to flourish, so let's let's set that up. So the second email, the real email, I sent a real email last night, and uh, many of you would have got it if you've. And um, the email was talking about today. But I realized I sent it out after supper, and many of you, you know, it's the weekend, you don't want to read email, so let me read you my letter. Dear Hillcrest, our 100th anniversary celebration is only one week away. Well, Kurt did a great job of talking about all the great things, so I won't jump in with, with that. But I will say the rest of the letter. It says, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus had John write down commendations, corrections, and promises for seven churches that were roughly about 50 years old. And most scholars put the writing of Revelation at 95 AD. It's about 60 years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. So if churches that are 50 years old should take stock of where they're at, churches that are 100 years old probably have even more reason to reflect on their history and try to see their church again through Jesus' eyes. He is, after all, the head of the church. So tomorrow, or today, I want to speak about what Jesus might commend and correct us for as a church, based on our 100-year history. I think there are many things that have defined our history that we should celebrate and keep on prioritizing. You don't get to 100 years as a church and still have a bright, promising future without many good, godly dynamics at work. I think we should celebrate and double down on those things as we go forward into the future. That requires remembering the lessons God has taught our church over the years. At the same time, part of God's good leadership and fathering in our lives is the work of discipline and correction. For example, Proverbs 31, 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Are there things that he would want us to repent of and leave in the past as a church and as individuals? In the Bible, we find that God's people have often come together at historic moments in what are called solemn assemblies. At Mount Sinai, when they, in the giving of the law, that happened. Every year, the Old Testament feasts were times of solemn assembly, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, when they found the book of the law during King Josiah's reign, the return when they returned from captivity, and they were rebuilding the walls in the temple, and on the day of Pentecost. So today, in anticipation of our weekend of celebrating hundred years as a church, which is next weekend. I want to lead us through a mini solemn assembly that will lead us to coming forward for communion together at the end of our service. Now, if you want to be really familiar with how Jesus assesses churches, I'd recommend that on your own time you read through Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And um, there's a little bit of a pattern in those assessments that Jesus gives of the churches. First, he commends them for good things. Then he corrects them for bad things, and then he ends with a promise that if if you respond, if you do repent, if you you respond to what I'm saying, then there's a bright future for you. So, what I want to do today is, sometimes people call it identificational repentance. I'll tell you what that is a little bit. Several examples in the Bible, again, uh, some of them I mentioned, Ezra, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, different ones um, have practiced this identificational repentance. And it sounds a little bit like this when they say it, they do it. They say, I, like they're praying to God, I and my fathers have sinned. It's an interesting prayer. Did you, have you ever prayed a prayer like that, where you've said to God, Lord, I and my fathers have sinned maybe talking about your family tree, or I and my fathers. Now, in this case, they were talking about their nation. So they were repenting for their own sin, but they were repenting for the sin of the nation, of Israel. And uh, it's interesting about, like, we can go to extremes when it comes to past uh, sins. We can go to extremes. I think a couple extremes might be... um, is that we are so caught up in the past and its sins that we never never let go of the past. We're even living in the past. We never let go of of what has happened back, back there. I don't think that's where God wants us to live. The other extreme would be failing to ever consider the past. I think, what's that statement? Those who forget the past are bound to repeat it. You know, There's lessons that we learned in the past. And they, they're good for us. And so not concerning the past is, 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 is also maybe not considering that the past has an impact on the present. Sometimes we have bad fruit in our life or bad results in our lives because we haven't dealt with things in the past. And it keeps showing up in our present. And so acknowledging the past I think is appropriate. Owning our responsibility in the past that's That's definitely something we should do. Learning from the past so we can make the future better. Absolutely. And repenting for the past. Repenting for the past. To repent. Now, I I remember when I was in the Nipahuan church, the Nipahuan church had a, just before I arrived there, a couple years before I arrived there, they had a really bad church split. Church split in two. And then um, that church split. Went on to split in two soon after that. It was just—it was a mess, a mess of relationships, a mess of, of, of broken relationships across in a very small community. And um, anyhow, so another church had been formed and started, and there was awkwardness and you know difficulty in relationship for several years. But one day we got a call from the pastor of that church, and he said. Um, could we have a church service together? And we were like, oh, well, you know, what, what would you want to do? And he said, well, I kind of think our church started in, with bad roots. And I kind of think if we don't deal with those bad roots, we'll end up with bad fruit. And I was like, you want to come together and have a time of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation? We were all for it. And so we had this wonderful church service where, sort of, these two, this church that once was one and now split into two, came back together. And there was repentance. There was people saying, I'm sorry, and please forgive me, and, and I love you. And it was an incredible uh, thing to be a part of. It really was. But I just thought about that, what he, what he had said. You know, I think our church has some bad roots, and I don't want it to ha- result in bad fruit. So today, my intention is to ask the question of what would Jesus command Hillcrest for and what would Jesus correct Hillcrest for. But before we will go there, I think we need to just recognize how much we need the Lord's leadership in our lives. Like, if, you, if, we don't, if we don't care about what he would call good and what he would call bad, if we don't care about his commendations or his corrections... It is probably a sign that we do not realize how much we need him. And so I'm going to invite the worship team. They're going to come back and they're going to just lead us in in a very simple song that says we need the Lord. We're going to sing this song. You've probably heard it before. Lord, I need you. Yes, I need you. If we're going to uh, identify some things today in this historic moment of 100 years for our church, and getting ourselves ready, even in our hearts, for this next weekend of celebration. We have to acknowledge that uh, the, we need the Lord. We need him in every way. Every minute. every minute. That's right. We need him every way. And so I'm going to invite you to sing this song. And I think it's just preparing our hearts. I, I, think I, I just want to pray really quickly before we do this, but just prepare our hearts for this time. Lord, would you, would you search our hearts? For some of us, we, aren't, we don't have a long history with this church. We don't, maybe, it's hard to identify with the past that we weren't a part of. And Yet, I, I believe you're going to show us things or you're going to identify things today that we need to repent of. So God, whether it's individual repentance or corporate repentance, would you search our hearts? Would you see if there's any wicked way in us, any way that doesn't align with the calling that you have for our lives and the way that you have commanded for us to live as your followers. Would you shine the searchlight of your Holy Spirit on those areas in our hearts? And then, Lord, may we respond with repentance for anything you reveal. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen just invite you to stand we're going to sing we're going to identify our church's great desperate need for the leadership of god in our lives let's worship him
1: lord i come i confess bowing here I find my rest and without you I fall apart you're the one who guides my heart Lord I need you oh, my righteousness oh God how I need you where sin runs deep your grace is more where grace is found is where you Jesus, you're my hope and stay. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay.
0: begin with the commendations. Again, I tried to ask myself this question. If Jesus was writing a letter to Hillcrest, like he did in the book of Revelation to seven different churches, if he was writing a letter to Hillcrest, what might he commend us for and what might he correct? And so I'll begin with commendations. There's nine that I've written. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, "'For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine,' Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Here's, my, here's the first commendation, and I don't think it's my commendation. I think this is, uh, this is what, what Christ would want to say to the church. You have been faithful to God's Word. Many churches slide away from teaching what the Word of God has to say to teaching what itching ears want to hear, especially when it is personally uncomfortable or it counters the culture. But Hillcrest, thanks to God, keeps coming back to the Bible. In fact, we come together each week in expectation of hearing what God has to say to us through His Word. In fact, whenever there's a topic of discussion, one of the main questions that we Keep asking, is what does God's word say about this? And so I want to offer that as a word of commendation. You have been faithful to God's word. And I think that's evident throughout our hundred years' history, is that we keep coming back to the word of God. Second commendation. Acts chapter 5, 42 says this day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. second commendation is, you have faithfully lifted up the name of Jesus. In membership class... <laughs> well, no, first let me ask you a question. How many of you say... You're pretty confident you know what denomination we're a part of? If, I, if you could just answer it off the tip of your tongue. How many? Yes, a bunch of you can. A bunch of you can, and a lot of you can. And you know what? I've often thought... We almost never say anything about our denomination, actually, from the front here. We're part of a denomination. It's the ACOP, the Apostolic Church of Pentecost. It's a good denomination. It's a denomination that's helped us. When we were in some of our more troubled days in our 100-year history, we had ACOP help us financially in many different ways. One of our sister churches in Regina gave us money every month through a season where we really needed it. We had people fundraising across the denominations. We even had a cookbook we made and sent out, and it got sold all over our denomination to raise funds for this church. So we're part of a great denomination. But you know what? If you ever go to an end, let me just say that, we'll have some people on our 100th year anniversary who are coming back or who are honoring this church from our denomination. So it's a great time for us to be thankful for how they have helped us. I mean, there was faithfulness in this church where people soldiered on through some difficult circumstances, but we didn't get to where we are today by ourselves. And so it's great for us, it'll be great for us to express that gratitude in the weekend to come. Having said all that, if you've ever taken our membership class, you'll know that one of the things we say in our membership class is even though we're part of a good denomination, have many sister churches across southern Saskatchewan that are part of that denomination, we don't talk an awful lot about our denomination. And the reason for that is because I think there was a conscious decision or that sort of came to us over the years is to lower the flag of our denomination and raise the flag of Jesus. And some people say, well, you know, what Hillcrest Church, what flavor is that? You know, what denomination? And I would say, well, we're Heinz 57. Because the vast majority of of us are not from one single denomination. Most of us are from 57 different backgrounds, right? Whether that's church backgrounds or non-church backgrounds, we are from a very diverse background. And so what unites us is not a denomination. What unites us is Jesus himself. And so when I say, you have faithfully lifted up the name of Jesus, I know that historically. Uh, One of our church locations down in down in uh, years ago, down the Main Street, had big big uh, neon signs that said, "Jesus saves." maybe you 've seen those on churches before. We had one, one of those back then, uh, because we were lifting up what, what we were about. We were lifting up what our hope was. We were lifting up where we looked to. We were lifting up the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. and so Jesus is what unites us. And Jesus is the one we proclaim. Jesus is the one who got us through the COVID lockdown. When there's all sorts of reasons to be divided. We kept coming back to, why? What do we have in common? What do we agree about? We agree about Jesus. We agree that he is the savior of the world, and he's Lord of all, and that he's the king of kings, and he's the hope of the world. That's a, you have faithfully lifted up the name of Jesus. Here's the third one Ephesians 2 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Hillcrest has faithfully championed the message of the grace of God. What is that message? Well, that God stands ready to forgive and accept those who have sinned against him, and that there's no sin that God is not willing to forgive. And that God loves each person and wants to make you and me his sons and daughters and give us the gift of eternal life with him. And that's why God graciously sent Jesus to do what our good deeds could never do, make us right with God, defeat the power of the enemy and of sin, and bring us into a position of honor in his family. You faithfully champion the message of the grace of God. There's lots of ways where churches can get off into religiosity or into moralism, and it's just about doing a list of behaviors. And sometimes it even twists the gospel so much that it becomes a gospel of doing enough to earn our way to heaven. But that's not the true gospel. It's always been about God's grace. It's always been that God has been so gracious to us that he did for us through Jesus what we could never have done for ourselves. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death on the cross that was, really was ours to die. And he took upon himself the sins of the world so that we can approach God not based on our righteousness but based on Jesus' righteousness, based on his perfect track record. It's all grace. It's all grace. None of us will stand before God and boast of what we have done. We'll only boast in Jesus Christ and his work done for us. And that's where our hope lies. And this church has been faithful in, again, coming back and back to the message of the grace of God. Number four, Revelation 7-9 says, The great multitude, oh, Revelation 7-9, After this I looked, and there was before me a great multitude, no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Number four, you have cared about the nations and sought to reach them with the love of God. You faithfully sent out global workers cross-culturally and supported them over long durations. And that has resulted in supporting many missionaries, including the Matson's are a good example, for over 50 years to go to Taiwan, over half, which is half of our lifespan as a church. That readiness to love cross-culturally was made evident when uh, we helped Syrian refugees settle here. And, and we built bridges with newcomers to Canada, from Africa, from China, from India, and from more places. Some of the, the programming that we have has come out of this. Uh, kitchen kits for newcomers to Canada. Uh, Let's talk program for those who are, who, are, who are growing in their English skills. And then the bridges class, they all spring from this same heart. Or the nations, and wanting to bring the love of God as, as, as well as we can to the nations. Even some of the ones we've sent out, we've sent, we've sent out many of our young leaders. I think of Lisa, I think of uh, Brittany and Tiara. These are ones who've gone out from our congregation to the nations to bring the love of God to them. So you've cared about the nations and sought to reach them with the love of God. Here's number five. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You have built and rebuilt a culture of brothers and sisters living together in unity. Our church is full of trusting, harmonious relationships between people, pastors, the board of elders, other leaders. At our annual meeting, the moment where we make Personal motions of thanks or the times where we talk about what we love about the church are usually the longest parts of our annual meeting. We just breeze through the business as fast as we can because we can't wait to thank each other for the ways that people are ministering and serving and loving in our church. It's amazing. The first time I attended an annual meeting of this church, I didn't believe it was real. It was like, this is too good to be real. 21 years later, it's real, people. It's real. You did very well to preserve our love and unity through the COVID lockdowns. I've already mentioned that, but I brag about that. When I talk to other pastors and about our church, that's one of the big things I say. You know what? You guys were gracious, and, and you preserved unity. You know, this culture had to be rebuilt in the 90s because our culture of unity took a hit in the 80s. And I've read about those days and I've heard stories from those of you who've lived them and I've witnessed how so many of you have worked so hard to preserve and maintain harmony and unity over the last 20 years with care and attention to relationships. You have really put in the effort to create a culture where, you know, there's very little conflict in a church this size, there normally would be lots and lots of conflict. There's very little conflict at Hillcrest compared to a comparable sized church. It's you have worked very good. You've built and rebuilt a culture of unity. Number six, First Corinthians nine twenty two to twenty three says, To the weak I become the weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. You have changed your outreach methods without changing the gospel message. Let me say it again because it sounds like a tongue twister. You've changed your outreach methods without changing the gospel message. So I think of some of the things that we used to do and now, and now we do. From radio programs on CHAB to online services. From busing kids to Sunday school to mega sports camp. From meeting in the Grove on the Spicer Farm to to developing and building Kettleston Camp. From churches in a one-room schoolhouse or rented theatres to positioning ourselves on the hill as the city grew. From Easter happy hour. You know, if there's ever a name I wish we'd trademarked? If we had the copyright for happy hour, we probably would have made a million bucks. From Easter happy hour to voltage new year's eve party we've changed our methods we'll continue to change our methods but we haven't changed the message of the gospel i think some churches get that backwards they think that the gospel's not what people need anymore it's antiquated and so they change the gospel. Sometimes they actually do the total opposite and that they don't change any of their methods. They just change the message. And that is a sure path to decline and disappearing as a church. But we're here 100 years later because we changed the methods and didn't change the message. And that's the key for going forward as a church as well. We'll still need to change our methods, but we're never going to change the message. By the grace of God, Lord willing, that will never be true of Hillcrest. Number seven. Mark eleven seventeen says, as he taught them, he said, it is not written. Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is Jesus talking in the temple, and he's in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is a place where people who aren't Jewish can come. That's what a Gentile is. You're not Jewish. Can come to the temple and see what is this worship of God that happens here. And they can experience it at some level and, and, um, and embrace God as well. And so what Jesus was so upset about, well, several things they turned it into a just buying and selling place, and there, was all sorts, and there was elevated prices and stuff like that. But also, the court of the Gentiles was completely useless in that context for reaching the Gentiles. Here's the commendation. You have used each building as a tool to accomplish the mission. In some contexts, the building almost gets worshipped. It becomes like that. Have you ever been to someone's house and they have like a living room that you, could, you almost can't sit in? Or if you sit in it, you're so scared. It's okay. If you got one of those, that's your prerogative. But some churches are treated like that. That you almost can't use it. Because it must be kept in absolutely pristine condition. But that's not been true about our 100-year history. A building bursting at the seams has never really bothered you. In fact, you relish the building being used all week long to bring people together for Christian discipleship. And you lend it to the community for so many things high school graduations, large funerals, even small things like just meetings of, of community groups or, or birthday parties. This building gets used. And every church we've had has gotten used. From O.J. Lovick's first meetings in 1923, which were packed, to over 500 kids at Easter happy hour, which made our Hoshalega location packed, to Voltage on New Year's Eve, again, where every corner of this building is used and packed. It doesn't bother us to put a little bit of wear and tear into the building. You know what? One of the things I love doing with friends that I have who aren't Christians, friends or family members who aren't Christians, because I often run into them around Christmas time, is I'll often show them the voltage highlight video. And I'll say, uh, oh, they'll, they'll talk about what they're doing for, you know, New Year's Eve, and I'll say, oh, our church is having a New Year's Eve party. And that sounds like someone sipping tea in the corner, doesn't it? And so I say, uh, yeah, I've actually, I'll just pull it up on my computer and you can, or my phone. You can just, yeah, this is what we do every year. And then they see this place packed and everything that's happening and all the activity. And I go, yeah, just, it's just my sleepy little church having a little bit of fun. <laughs> it's great. It's awesome. But I think one of the great things that we've all discovered along the journey, and I discovered that was in this church, was that you didn't worship the building. You saw it as a tool for mission. And you didn't, it didn't bother you when there were holes in the drywall because kids were here. It didn't bother you that there's wear and tear because we're using it to reach out to people. And I think that is the heart of what God wanted to happen in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles. I think he thought that... <laughs> I don't want to say it too disrespectfully, but I mean, that could have been a Billy Graham crusade every day of the week, basically. It was meant to be a place where the Gentiles would experience the one true God. And God means for that to be Hillcrest as well. To commend you for that. Number eight, you made great efforts to let the little children come to me. Jesus said that, let... Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I think there's great efforts that go on to counteract anything that might hinder children in this church. In our history, we use cars and personal invitations and busing ministries to to bring children from all over the city to come to our programs. And I've seen just in our culture, you volunteer to teach children and to lead children. And you don't bother about the kid noise, or the kid busyness, or the kid activity. I mean, I think lots of kids get more running done in this church than they do at home. Right? And nobody fusses about that. Everybody loves the fact that the little children are here. Our older generations especially excel in this area. They've made ministering to families a priority even when their family has grown up. I see a lot of number of seniors, they take care of kids at mom's time out so moms can get a break. And again, you welcome kid activity, you welcome kid ministry, you welcome it, you pray for it, you repair the drywall for it, and you and you desire more of it. You've made great efforts to let little children come to me. It's a huge part. It's a, one of our core values at Hillcrest Church, a next-generation focus, and it's shown up in spades. Here's the ninth one. First Timothy 4.12 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You have not looked down on leaders because they are young. And you have not prevented developing young people and young leaders Hillcrest tends to be the... It's the kind of church that tends to give young people a chance to learn and grow and develop. You have a lot of grace for people to make mistakes. And you, you keep developing young leaders. This summer was a great focus on the next generation. And our summer had a great focus on the next generation. We had several young leaders do the teaching in the service. We had Noah, we had Nate, we had Tia... Uh, Tiana, they all preached this summer. I didn't have anyone come back to me and say, you know, Steve, you should really just get people who are really experienced. Now, they all did a great job, so I think that's probably why there wasn't a lot of complaining about it on one hand. But the other reason is, even if someone had got up here and tried their best and sort of didn't do that great, I think they would have experienced loads of grace, love and commendation. Nobody would have written them off and everyone would have believed for better and greater things. Because that's how you are. So many leaders, so many young leaders have been raised up out of this, the history of this church. And I just love to see how, when it comes to big efforts uh, or when it comes to our efforts to do things, that young leaders are included. I love that junior highs are helping in the teaching of, with, of children. I love that Mega Sports Camp, all the young leaders that were in the room praying that these children would come to faith in Christ, and of course does, a dozen did. I think Kettleston Camp has been a big part in the mentoring and development of young leaders, and Joe's Place has played a significant part in the mentoring of young leaders. But you you don't disqualify or or leave them out of the picture because they're young. In fact, you have mentored many, many young leaders, and I think God is is pleased with that, and, and that's something we want to continue to do and do even more. So those are nine commendations that I believe are accurate about our church, and I believe that they're biblical. They're things that Jesus wants for his church. Now, I want to share these four. These are four corrections. Now, I don't want to, if any of this, none of this should sound like a slight against those who've gone before us. I'm fully aware that there may be a day where someone will stand where I'm standing today and lead you in a time or lead a church of the future in a a time of repentance for what people in the past have done. I hope they don't mention me by name. Steve, who tried to defraud the whole congregation by getting gift cards or whatever. (laughs) So that's not what this is about. Um, Having said that, I think the Holy Spirit does want to bring correction to areas that are not in alignment with Him. And so I am mentioning these four areas, and I'm not doing this from a high position. I feel convicted in all four of these areas personally. Even if you don't feel that, I do. All four of these areas have been an area of deep conviction for me and, and uh, where I, I recognize at some level the need to repent. And so you might, for you, this might be something that you recognize this is something in our church history, or you just recognize it for you personally, that you need to align yourself with God in this area. And we'll welcome whatever work the Holy Spirit wants to do in you this morning through, through sharing these things. All right, here's the first one. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply. An observation has been made that Canadians, and I think this would be true about most Canadian Christians, and it's probably true about Hillcresters, we tend to be polite and private. In our culture, being kind or nice or tolerant is prioritized and elevated. In some ways, it's almost put at that's the high bar of living. And so if you're being those things, and to be those things, you, uh, you live and let live. It is a low bar compared to what Christ has called us to. He has called us to love each other deeply. To live and not live is just to tolerate someone's existence or preferences. To love deeply is to initiate with loving words, with loving actions. It's to go the extra mile. It's to it, it pushes into relationship as opposed to standing far back from relationship. So I think the challenge for us is that we're called to deep love, yet we have a culture that invites us to downgrade that, to just live and let live. And so sometimes we are, are influenced by the culture, and we hold back. We hold back relationally. We may even think wonderfully loving and nice thoughts about other people, but we don't express it or we don't initiate with them. And then we even may have nudges from the Lord to act with love or to speak with compassion and encouragement, and we don't follow through with them. And I think the result of that is that people who often are living lives of quiet desperation don't receive from the family of God, what they need to receive. And many people fall through the cracks. There's a need for us to initiate with love for one another, initiate with loving actions and words, and not to miss the opportunities to minister to each other. Pastor Dave Wicks shared this scripture with me, and I thought it was good for defining this area. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Now, I'm not saying this to elevate the level of open rebukes that happen in our congregation. Although this is saying that there is a goodness to when someone uh, gives something that may sound like critical comment, but gives it in a a loving way and gives it for your betterment. But my focus here is on the other part, hidden love. An open rebuke is better than hidden love. I thought, how is it better? Well, because it initiated. At least someone cared enough to bring it up with you or to talk about you in the rebuke category. But why should our love be hidden? Why should our love be withdrawn? I share this because I want to elevate the level of love. Love that initiates, that speaks and acts out of care and concern for each other, that sees others and cares. We are called to be the family of God. That's not just like a label that means nothing. Jesus said that in the world, that the world would be able to identify that we are Jesus' followers by the love that we have for each other. That won't be true if we act just like Regular run of the mill Canadians. Live and let live, or basic tolerance, is not what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about something much more than that. So, in this way, he's calling us to live counterculturally, to live at a deeper level of relationship and care and concern for each other in the body of Christ than people can experience in the regular relationships they have in the world. So when our love is hidden, when our love is shallow or hidden, because he's called us to deep love and not hidden love, we have not acted as followers of God, but as products of our culture. For this, we need to repent. Repent. I've got three more, and then we'll repent in one big prayer, okay? But maybe you recognize even this in the moment. You say, that's me. I, I recognize. I recognize that. Here's the second one. Ephesians two, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This, the first one was hidden love. Or hiding our love from each other. The second one is unforgiveness for sins done against us. Now I don't know your story. I don't. I've heard some of your stories, but I, I, you know, of how unforgiveness has been a factor in your friendships or in your family. How that's caused devastation through bitterness and resentment. But I am aware that this continues to be one of the enemy's best weapons against friendships and families and churches. When we don't forgive sins that are done against us, the enemy gains an access point into our lives to breed bitterness and resentment. If and when this may have happened to you, like someone sinned against you, if and when it may have happened to you, the enemy wanted to use that. To, build a, to gain a foothold in your life, to gain, build a stronghold of bitterness and resentment. And that it would be a spreading cancer within relationships in your life. Of course, Jesus doesn't want that for us. He wants freedom in our lives in this area, and he wants us to, to experience that freedom through the process of forgiveness. And that's why in Ephesians 4, two, he calls us to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We're to imitate the forgiveness we have received from Christ, and extend that forgiveness into our relationships. So maybe you've maybe you felt that resentment when there's been some conflict in in the church. Maybe it's been when maybe you've had friends who've left the church, and it's been hard to forgive. Maybe there's been unforgiveness within your family. Maybe there's been jealousy between you and another Christian. Maybe COVID, although we we seem to do really good as a church through COVID, but maybe COVID was a time where bitterness and resentment started to take hold. You know, monthly communion is a good time to repent of unforgiveness and obey Jesus by choosing to forgive. A hundred years is also a good time. Ask the Lord. Is there anyone you haven't forgiven? I mean, ask him that. Even just be sensitive in this moment if he's putting his finger on someone that you still harbor resentment against. But unforgiveness is not an option for Christians. If you're not a follower of Jesus today and you're just listening to this, well, then you can make the decision whether you're going to forgive or not. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you have embraced his discipline in your life, that he is your Lord and Savior, and he has, he has the right to call you to obedience in your life, he commands his followers to always forgive. It's not an option for a Christian. It is our call to obedience. And if we claim him as Lord then we must act, you know, we must obey, we must respond. And so if we've, if we've harbored unforgiveness in our hearts, for this we need to repent. Here's the third one, First Peter 5, five. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the, to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. third one is spiritual pride. At the end of the 70s and just going into the 80s, uh, our church on Hoshel had two services and a Sunday school that was bursting at the seams. And opportunities opened up to build this building. It was, uh, I heard it described as, heady times, many churches were building great buildings in Saskatchewan. Quite a few people had read the story of the Crystal Cathedral in California. And you know, there's a, a danger when everything's going good. There's a danger when, uh, when you're on top of things, when you're winning, when, when, when even as a church, you're doing really well. You can start to think that you've got God, the Bible, the Christian life all figured out, and pride can show up in many different ways. It can show up as a harsh spirit of judgmentalism. It can show up in our comparison with others or competition with others. Pride can show up in an unwillingness to learn. Pride can show up as defensiveness or an unhealthy self-focus. We went through a tough time in the 80s, and a humbling happened. Say pride, the scriptures say pride leads to a fall. Well, you know what? Humbling leads to a raising. And I think in our history, we've experienced that on bigger and smaller scales, and, and then individually, we experienced that that God does truly oppose the proud but shows favor to the humble. And if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. And so, I think Hillcrest experienced a humbling humbling from the Lord in the 80s and early 90s. I'm sure there are many other moments in our history where there's been a, a time of humbling. It's way better if we choose it than if it's chosen for us. And I want to say, I, want to say any, uh, I don't want to say this incorrectly, that you know I know exactly all that was happening. I think spiritual pride can often be mixed in with great intentions. And I think that happens time and time again. So we need the Holy Spirit to reveal in us many times, because our pride is often obscured to us. We don't see it. And so we need to, to see that. Where, 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 how is that competitive spirit crept in? How is that, um, that defensiveness, that unwillingness to learn? How is that I've got it all figured out attitude starting to show up? The good thing is that whenever Hillcrest experienced the humbling from the Lord, that brought freedom from spiritual pride. And usually following that, there was times of growth and maturity and fruitfulness. I think the humbling that we experienced in the 80s helped us see our building differently. It helped us prioritize ministry. It taught us new ways to preserve relationships and how valuable relationships truly are. And again, all of these things show us how futile it is to try to build a church without the blessing of God. And so I think a hunger for the leadership of God and the blessing of God grew in times of humbling. So spiritual pride can be with us in any generation, in any time. And so... Even right now, be open to the Holy Spirit. Maybe he'll show you an area of spiritual pride. And if you find it there, this is also something that we need to repent of. Here's the last one. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp. And put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The last one is isolationism. Our motto once was, years ago, church with a heart in the heart of Moose Jaw. A great motto. Church with a heart in the heart of Moose Jaw. When we built here, our new location was pretty forward-looking. There was no uh, West Park, uh, Iron Bridge, and very little Sunningdale, and no condos over on the other side either. The north was not really well-developed when we built here. So we went from being a church who was literally in the heart of Moose Jaw to being a little bit removed. And I think... There was goodness in all of that, but at the same time it, it could be a reflection of something that could happen in our, our hearts as well. That church can be giving up on being the light to everyone in the house, as Jesus described it, or the lamp that that sheds its light, or the or the town built on the hill. If we're to let our light shine before others, we cannot be under a bowl. We can't be removed. We can't be isolationist. So there's a natural trend, and that's a a sinful trend, towards Christians pulling back from the culture around us instead of being salt and light in the culture. And we've tried to fight this as a church, and we try to fight that within ourselves as well. But one of the outcomes that comes from isolation from the world around us as we stop prioritizing evangelism and discipleship. And so, I'm sure there's been times in our hearts, personally, but even in our our life uh, corporately as a church, where we've struggled with this, where it's just been... What we've longed to do is just spend all our time with Christian believers and to remove ourselves from the culture, and our engagement with the world. And yet Jesus didn't take us out of the world. He wanted us to be transformed people in the world, in relationship with the people of the world, to be the salt and light that we were meant to be. And so if if we have isolated ourselves from the world that needs Christ, For this we must repent as well. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord God of Heaven. The God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We ask that you just hear what we have to say. Today I pray on behalf of our church, on behalf of myself as well. And Lord, as we're joined together in prayer, we recognize that you are a most merciful God. You are incredibly merciful. And we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed. And we have sinned by what we've done and in some cases by what we've left undone. So we come before you today and we confess. We confess the sin of withholding our love, of hiding our love, of measuring our love by a Canadian standard instead of... Uh, following Jesus' standard. Withholding hospitality. Failing to initiate with love. Lord, we want to be set apart in how we live our lives in the area of love. We want to be uh, noticeable, noticeably different in how we love from the culture around us. We want to love deeply as you've commanded us to. So Lord, we repent for how we have not, we've not lived this out. We've not embraced that. Even how we've re- resisted nudges from you to engage in loving ways. For this we humbly repent. Lord, we confess the sin of, of isolationism. We confess that we have, um, at times, we've withdrawn from the culture. And we've left the work of evangelism, of testifying to who you are, we've left it aside. And we have not pursued a growing in, in our engagement with the world. We've not pursued relationships with people who are far from you. So for this, we humbly repent. Lord, we confess the sin of spiritual pride. This is often, often goes unseen, and we can't always spot it in ourselves. But Lord, it shows up when we fall, when we realize we weren't really living in dependence on you. We weren't really uh, trusting in you or looking to you for the things that we needed you to Uh, provide in our in our lives. We thought we had it all cased. Lord, help us not to boast in what we have done or to take credit for what you've done. Lord, we repent of spiritual pride. Lord, finally, in this area of unforgiveness, Lord, we repent for failing to obey you in this area. You've made it so clear that we are to forgive as you have forgiven us. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's any resentment, any, any grudge that we're hanging on to, that we would release that in our, out of our, our grip. We would let go of it. Instead, we'd hang on to you. We'd hang on to what you have done for us. We'd recognize that no one has sinned against us as greatly as we have sinned against you. You are a holy God. And we couldn't stand in your presence if you didn't graciously forgive. And yet you have. You have offered your forgiveness to the world. And so, Lord, you, through that great act, have enabled us to extend forgiveness into the world. So, Lord, let us be ones who forgive, who walk in forgiveness, who are not uh, ch- chained by the shackles of Of bitterness and resentment Lord even today help us to make that choice that act of faith to say I will forgive Lord help me through the whole process help me through the healing help me to bless those who curse me help me to love my enemies help me to pray for those who despitefully use me I want to follow you as you have commanded me to come Lord, I pray for our 100th anniversary. I pray even as people come back or, or people even reflect back on their history with Hillcrest, I pray that forgiveness would roll. I pray that people would walk in forgiveness. I pray that even as they think about things in the past where there's a, there's a, there's a pang that comes to their heart because of how they were treated badly, I pray that they would forgive. You do a great healing work in many people's lives through this, this 100th year. All these things we bring to you, Lord, in great confidence that if we confess our sins, you are faithful, you are just, and you will forgive. We thank you for your promise. We just offer all this in your name. Amen.